working drummer. Now kick it. This is the Working Drummer Podcast, serving up perspectives, experiences, and stories from ground-level working pros. Advice, tips, and secrets on how to build a career in the music business. Hey everyone, Zach Albetta here, and this is Working Drummer Podcast. Thanks for checking us out. My conversation today is the first of a two-parter with Atlanta-based drummer, singer, and band leader Ganesh Girijaya. In his 25 years in Atlanta, Ganesh has been involved in primarily cover and tribute projects and is currently the drummer, lead singer, and band leader for Yacht Rock Schooner. As always, you can find us at workingdrummer.net where you can check out past episodes and learn more about who we are and what we're about. Please follow us on social media, share pics and videos of your gigs using the hashtag workingdrummer. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and help us out by leaving a rating and review there. We'd also like to encourage you to visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash working drummer if you'd like to contribute a little money each month to help keep the podcast going strong. There are some great incentives there for donations at any level, including t-shirts and stickers, access to bonus content, a free lesson with one of our past guests, such as Ben Caesar or Carter McLean, or the chance to be interviewed on an episode of Working Drummer. You can donate as much or as little as you see fit, starting at $1 a month, and every donation at any level is greatly appreciated. Speaking of those t-shirts, we are doing a holiday sale on those, letting them go for 10 bucks or 3 for 20 You can place your order for those at WorkingDrummer.net. I'd like to introduce you all to Crush Drums by telling you about one of their new lines. They are offering a brand new birch kit called the Sublime Birch Series. The Sublime Birch is 100% North American birch. Here's Crush's own Terry Platt talking about some of the cool features of the Sublime Birch Series. One thing that Crush has always done is on our 14-inch floor toms, we do a 14 by 13. It's got the fullness and depth of a 14 by 14 tom, but you can also, tuning range-wise, manipulate it to sound more like a 14 by 12 for the guys that, that enjoy that tone as well. It also includes the hoop saver claws that we developed where we actually have the rubber grommet under the claw protruding through the front of the claw. So if somebody grabs their drum set and sets it down, say, on concrete, you know, claw side down, it doesn't scratch up everything. And here's one of my favorite things about what Crush is doing. The bearing edges are cut a little more specifically for the drums. Our standard edge is a, you know, kind of a double 45, and the outside is rounded over so you get some more head contact with the shell. On the bass drum, you'll notice that the resonant side is even rounder than that, and then the uh, batter side is going to be a little bit sharper, just so you get that nice snap out of the kick, but the resonant head really brings the whole shell into the equation of the tone. You can also find a link to the new Sublime Birch series in our show notes and see the beautiful finishes and configurations they offer. In the near future, we've got much more to share in regard to Crush Drums and this dynamic company. For now, check out Crush Drums at crushdrum.com. So this was a pretty wide-ranging conversation with Ganesh. We covered everything from his current gig to social media to Levon Helm to yoga. We do a deep dive into his yogic spiritual practice, which I found really fascinating. I hope you do too, but if not, just hang in there. We, we bring it back around to the drums before too long. So here we go with Ganesh Girijaya. Tell me about the Yacht Rock thing, because I, you know, when I, I moved here two years ago and, and almost immediately I was kind of seeing Yacht Rock Review and Yacht Rock Schooner just everywhere all the time. And I'm, I'm still not completely clear on the whole infrastructure and, and apparatus of 
these multiple bands and this sort of entertainment company, Please Rock, that is kind of the umbrella. That sure, because you guys do some work for Please Rock too. Rubyville, yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, okay, so Please Rock is the parent company. So Nick uh, Nespajani and Peter Olson are the singers for Yacht Rock Review. So probably back in about 2008, um, they had a Thursday night thing. They were in an original band called Y.O.U. Mm-hmm. Um, but they also had a um, they had booked, you know, like they had a like a variety show night at the Dark Horse Tavern on Thursday nights. Yeah, uh, they called it the surprise party, and um, this was a. I think that, I'm not sure if they did it under their name Y.O.U., but um, they did uh, anyway. So it was the three of them: uh, Mark Cobb, Nick Nespajani, Peter Olson, who were like original members of Y.O.U., and then they added Mark Bencuya on keyboards. Mark Donnells, who was like a former Meddlesome alum as well. That's where mm-hmm. I met him. And uh, my brother, Greg Lee, on bass. And then that original iteration also had Eric Frampton on keyboards. So they talked about um, one night, you know, and this was when Meddlesome was still going on. And I'm there like three four nights a week with Meddlesome. And Mark was actually playing occasionally with us in Meddlesome still then. So we're having dinner one night and he says, hey, we had this great idea we're going to do for the show. We're going to do like an AM Gold thing. Yeah. And so they were going to call it AM Gold right up until like, you know, really close to the show. And then uh, they got hit to that Yacht Rock webisode. And I'm, I think that might have inspired the song selection in the beginning. So they decided to call it Yacht Rock Review. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was just a one-off super fun like i sang a quarter of the show right um you know nick sang stuff but we also had like tons of guest singers in from um uh, all around and uh curtis even sang some and it was really really fun so uh they just kind of get back to their regular thing and they're going on and on and they get like maybe a year later they're getting close to the end of their tenure there Mm -hmm. so uh and they're just like uh, you know, they're coming up with a different show every week and they're like, well, let, you know, we got a month left. Let's just do Yacht Rock for a month. Okay. Mm-hmm. So then that just sells out for the last month. And the promoter that works at the club, still there, Curtis Clark, and he, I guess he went to them and says, you know, I'm going to I'm gonna give you guys first crack at this, but I'm going to have this kind of music mm-hmm. in this room on this night. Yeah. And they're like, eh, so we'll stay. And they, they'd started building from there. And yeah. it was like really kind of, off and running. Right. So within a year of that, like Nick is hitting me up to start the overflow band, which is yacht rock schooner. Right. You know, and then, um, around that, I think around the time that, uh, I'm not sure if please rock predates yacht rock, but you know, somewhere around that time, they had this parent company to kind of like all their different things. So they had like a couple of, you know, like wedding cover bands and different things that different iterations of their own group. Right. That were working in different, situations and please rock was the umbrella for all that Mm -hmm. and that just kind of ballooned into the umbrella for you know all their stuff right so like i've been running schooner our first show was new year's eve 2009 and i've been running it since then it's been going on that long yeah wow okay and yacht rock had at least a solid year in before that but it was more like i think more like 18 months yeah yeah well i mean that's a that's a quick Um, <laughs> that's a quick first chapter to be then starting an overflow band, like within a year, year and a half. Mm-hmm. Um, so are you, what, like what, in addition to, uh, drumming and singing in, in Yacht Rock Schooner, what are your administrative and band leading 
responsibilities. Um, I'm, you know, the MD, and but also kind of like de facto tour manager and road manager and whatever. Yeah. But, you know, like there's a, a administrative infrastructure within Please Rock, and they do a lot of, of the work for us. Mm-hmm. So they have a production manager that kind of oversees uh, the both the yacht rock band. So I get a lot of help from Kip and a lot of help from Zach Wetzel mm-hmm. uh, and a lot of help from Rebecca and Kristen in uh, kind of administrative and marketing and stuff. But I do kind of take a lot of responsibility on myself for that stuff as well so that um, I do a lot of marketing for them and I do a lot of, uh, you know, like just kind of handling this and that, like mm-hmm. staffing and stuff. Yeah. And so the thing is like Schooner... Um, for a minute, had a solid lineup for the first four or five years. And these days, it's run a little bit more like a traditional kind of corporate cover band. So there's a little bit of turnover here and there. Mm-hmm. Um, there are some guys that are real solid primary. Um, but, you know, like I haven't played with the exact same lineup like night at one night to the next yeah. all year. Right, right. Which is, you know, and it's fine because I love everybody. And now, like, we kind of got all the kind of the the farm, everybody's really kind of trained up to speed. Right. So it doesn't really suffer from gig to gig. Yeah. Yeah. And before that, had you, had you taken on that role in a group or on a project before? Yeah. Yeah. I've um, been playing out, uh, like I was kind of the de facto MD for Metalsome. Okay. And that catalog was huge. It right. was like, eventually it was like 300 songs. Jesus. You know, and the, the, Staffing turnover was not nearly as bad, mm-hmm. but you know we did go through a bunch of guys, and oddly enough, uh, one of the, the guys that I spent the most time with as a guitar player in Metalson is now like our primary in Yacht Rock. Mm-hmm. Uh, a guy named Matt Reed. Okay, he's fantastic. Yeah. So you know I did that for Metalson. Um, I ran shows. I worked for uh, School of Rock for right. quite a few years and I was a, a show director there and like head of the drum department and that was when my brother was there also he was the uh, music director of the whole school uh, working under Justin Nyheiser who's now like super big national corporate that that stuff right and that's how Greg solved the problem of I have a job let me buy a house <laughs> <laughs> he's like look I have a paycheck <laughs> <laughs> I'm legit <laughs> Please believe me. Yeah. So, you know, I've done a few of those things. Like, certainly the um, going into the Yacht Rock thing was kind of the first time it was like, hey, we want you to MD this. Okay. You know, and like that was kind of the first organized thing. But in those other bands, you know, like, and of course, running a show for a school of rock, you kind of have to be able to teach all the kids all the instruments. Right. You know, a, a whole ACDC show or yeah, like a yeah. whole Rush show. So, like, I could, you know, get through that stuff and, and be organized about that. But it's, you know, it's different with the MD thing and a bunch of adults. You got to, as you know, you know, manage schedules and hurt some cats. Yeah, we, we use the term adults loosely. but <laughs> Adults meaning they're too big to, to hit them. <laughs> right. Um, so, you've been, you've been doing bands of all sorts for, for a long time. Um, do you notice uh, an in, an increase or an uptick in the demand for these kind of cover bands or tribute shows? Oh, sure. Why why is that? Do you do you know? Do you have any theories? Uh, I mean, this yeah. is something I've been wondering about for a long time. I mean, you know, the I think the prevailing theory is uh, you know Rome is burning. <laughs> you know, so there was like, and the, it, you hear those comparisons all the time about how you know, kind of the latter part of the Roman Empire, like they were really obsessed with uh, 
um, nostalgia, you know, mm-hmm. and like reminiscing in the old times and all this stuff. And, mm-hmm. you know, and you do see a huge part of that. I think like also um, kind of information technology becoming what it has become, you know, like moving through like orders of magnitude in the last 10 years mm-hmm. has kind of changed the way people consume music, yeah. you know, in a lot of ways. But one of the things I see that happen is like, you know, so there's kids coming up and they're much, it's much easier for them to listen to the music that their parents had. Right. But also to kind of explore that music further without a leash. Right. You know, so it's like you can get into, you know, like down the rabbit hole and YouTube and Spotify and stuff. And, you yeah. know, like I really want to check out that first record of Sam and Dave's, you know, and you can get it on Spotify and just listen to it. Right. You know? That makes, that makes total sense because 20 years ago, if you wanted to get into something, from 20 years before that, you had to go to the record store and like hope maybe they had something that you right. were looking for. But now it's just, it, you, so in addition, in addition to being able to find any new stuff just at your fingertips right now, you can, you can find any old stuff. Um, and yeah. I, I, I experience it too. Like some of these tribute shows I've done, it's, you know, it's stuff my dad listened to, like Huey Lewis and the news and, um, <laughs> you know, and it, it, it really, uh, holds a, uh, a special place in my heart. <laughs> well, it's really fun. So, like, you know, you know, I do a Steely Dan tribute, and like when I first started playing drums, like that was the bar, right? You know, and so like uh, the first before I even started taking lessons, like I'm just playing along with Steely Dan records, and it, so it's like that's a real trip to me to be, you know, like now I make a living playing those songs where right. I, I was just like that would might as well have been the moon when I first started playing, <laughs> right, right. And do you do you lament at all kind of the um, the the de-emphasization or or relative unpopularity of original music of original projects in the average music scene? No, because I don't see it that way. Like I think I still see like new music and original music as as vibrant as ever. Uh-huh. You know, in terms of its like market value, it's a different ball game. You know, uh, and it's clearly much more difficult. Right. But that being said, like, it's not hard to find unbelievably good new stuff. Right. Even, like, around the corner. Right. Like, you know, Adron. Like, Mm -hmm. yeah. You know, come on. You know, and, like, uh, really, really cool local stuff. All the stuff that Kevin Scott's into. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and it's fantastic. Uh, I mean, I could go on, but Blair Crimmins and, you know, just talking about Atlanta bands. Right. Like, and guys on our roster at Please Rock, mm-hmm. you know, it's it, fantastic stuff. And like uh, also people that are kind of like combining old and new, like what Ruby's doing. Yeah. You know, it's kind of like re representing this thing. And it's like nouveau retro. Right. You know, right. I just kind of look at it from from the uh, from the artist perspective, from the perspective of Ruby or Blair or Adron, who, you know, are producing original music and trying to build a following um you know it 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 seems it seems like really heavy lifting to me it just seems exhausting and you know blair's been doing it 10 years ruby's been doing it 10 years um and for them to have to compete with people like us now doing the tribute shows that are so uh so popular i'm I'm, I'm ambivalent about it, you know, because on the one hand, these tribute shows are so fun. This music is so great. But on the other hand, I want I want people like Blair and Ruby to get their due. And, they, you know, they're they're plenty popular in Atlanta and regionally. Sure. But I think it's, uh, you know, it's apples and oranges, but I don't think many people see it that way, mm-hmm. you know, because it's like um, uh, Kip Connor put it this way. And I thought this is a great way to put it. It's like he used to be 
uh, live sound and tour manager for Sean Mullins. Mm-hmm. And so he, he'll, he'll say, you know, well, when I used to be in the music business, this is what would happen. Now that I'm in the entertainment business, yeah. this is what happens. Right. You know, so they are kind of really different animals, mm-hmm. but I think that it's real easy for original artists to look at what we do and be like, you know, mm. you know, this, is, this seems so hard. These guys, you know, it looks so easy for them. Right. You know, because the music that we play has already been sold. Right. We just have to communicate that that's what we're doing, mm-hmm. you know, but like they have to really get out there. But that being said, it's also like, um, for somebody that's savvy, they, there really are, haven't been more opportunities to disseminate your stuff. Right. You know, so it levels the playing field, but then you got to be super good, mm-hmm. you know? And so that's like why, I mean, Adron by herself with a guitar, dude, slave, you know? So, and it's like, that, that's why she's getting her propers, you know? Mm-hmm. And like, she's starting to blow up a little bit. And I think that, you know, that's not going to stop. Right. Right. So uh, I think that, you know, so as long as they don't view it, you know, they're trying to view things in it with the wrong set of glasses, I think. Yeah. I, I understand what you're saying about how it's, it's, it's not a pie that's being divvied up between cover bands and original bands. Mm-hmm. It's, it's like two different pies almost. And, and people want both of those pies. You know, what they're going to spend their money on. You know, it's like, that's, the, that's the thing. So, and you do have to communicate. So for us, like I can say Steely Dan or whatever, mm-hmm. and people know what that is. But so Adron has to go a lot further to, uh, demonstrate what it is that you're getting when you pay uh, for a ticket for her show. Right. Uh, and so, but there are a lot more opportunities to do that, you know, like, and there, there's a lot more things that you can do. It's, you know, but it's tough. Like for us, it, it just seems laughably easy. You know, you can just put together a band, but, and, you know, um, I say laughably easy, but it's really, the thing is, it's the age of the HD tribute, uh-huh. you know, and there always is going to be, and again, I keep coming back to Adrian. That's the reason, part of the reason why she's, she does well is that, um, there's always going to be a market for really, really high quality stuff. Mm-hmm. And, it, and that market tends to be price insensitive. It tends to be what? Price insensitive. Yeah. You know, because you're just, they want the absolute best. If you're putting out the absolute best out there that you, you know, that's possible, Mm -hmm. then there's going to be a huge market someplace for that. Talk about marketing the band. Well, I'm kind of a noob at this stuff, you know, we we all are, I think for, (laughs) well, and so for years, uh, Kevin Spencer was part of Yacht Rock Schooner mm-hmm. and he has like a marketing education. So I, I really picked up a lot from watching him kind of do some marketing and trying to help with some of that stuff when he would get overloaded. And, uh, you know, um, it, and I just pick up like a little from this person, a little from this person. And right now, like it just happens that, uh, you know, the demographic for the kind of tributes that we do is skews a little bit older, which mm-hmm. works great for Facebook marketing. Right. You know, right. and that's, you know, honestly, it's just kind of like getting out in front of it enough and also not really relying on uh, freebies, you know, just not going in knowing that you're going to have to budget some of your resources to market. Mm-hmm. And you can get a lot with uh, a little, but just, I, you know, I, I kind of see people sometimes are bemoaning the fact that they would have to pay to get to reach their audience on Facebook. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, that's, you know, I don't know. That seems like what Facebook is for. Right. Even though they didn't previously have to do it. But, 
you know, like I've seen enough of these kind of platforms come and go over the years where they all kind of go the same direction. Eventually they monetize every part of it. Right. And that's fine because, you know, it helps them, you know, sell their advertising or whatever. And it gives you a chance to make money in there if you spend a little bit of money. Mm-hmm. So I would say I get, you know, many times over back what I, what I put into marketing that stuff right and immediately when you when you talked about you know spending money on advertising and people bemoaning the fact that they have to do it i i flash back to 20 years ago when you had to print flyers and like you know kinko's didn't do that for free no um so i you know it's another example of how in the music industry people have become too used to getting shit for free yes like it and it happened almost overnight yes um and and, you know so (laughs) it's funny like you know musicians bitch about the fact that that audiences want music for free but then you know they they turn around and they're like oh i have to spend money on advertising i (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yes. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Um, so how have you gotten um, traction? Because, like, I've done some ads on Facebook for various projects and whatever. And and it seems um, I, I don't feel like I'm I'm good at knowing how to get the most bang for my buck with, with social media advertising. Well, Facebook is the only thing I can speak about. But I think, like, custom ad sets, you know, mm-hmm. like for your demographic and, like, tagging interests. Mm-hmm. So, um you know, say for a show that where we would say we would do a show in at the Vista Room, right? So, and then I would start by building that demographic with people that live in Atlanta and people that live in Decatur, mm-hmm. and then I would go down. You know, like Yacht Rock is, you know, has a, uh, a list of artists that we play. So I would list all those artists in my interests. But then I, you know, kind of dig into like, um, you know, say different members of those artists or like similar artists or uh, other bands that you know, the same type of people. So I'm really trying to kind of like find other things that are similar that people are interested in. So that way, like it tags them and kind of shows up in their feed. So So I have built a couple of ad sets that are working really well. Oh, so you have like preset, man. Okay. Yeah. You know, and I just, it was like one day I had to do an ad for that thing and I built an ad set and I saved it. Right. You know, and so now I like tweak it out every time, maybe add something, you know. So you're talking about dozens of keywords and interests. and Oh, yeah. Yeah. But, you know, it doesn't take forever. You know, it like really just takes five minutes when mm-hmm. you're setting it up. Yeah. And then, you know, so with these type of ad sets, you know, like the $50 default when you get in, if you get out in front of it enough, like for two months, you can really like see some traction for 50 bucks. Yeah. You know, it's a, you just got to get out in front of it and do your work ahead of time a little bit. Right. And I think that's that's a common mistake that I've certainly made is is just not being far enough in advance. Like, you know, your, your show is coming up in a week or two. You can get you can get some. But like you said, if you're two months out, then you can really. So check this out. This is where I picked that up from was. So, I, you know, I do um, a yoga teacher and I, I play kirtan, which is devotional yoga music uh-huh. um, or it's you know chanting and. So in that that's like a whole music market in and of itself. Right. Right. So uh, um, from the Sikh tradition, there's a, a woman named Snadam Kar. Now, uh, and she is ex- really, really popular in that world uh-huh. and really draws heavy crowds all the time. And so she would occasionally come and play at Kashi Atlanta, the yoga studio where I teach and I'm a member of the community there. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I'm chatting with them and stuff like that. And. Uh, and chatting with uh, my really good friend that's the general manager at Kashi, uh, you know, he's like godfather of my kids. We're really tight. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, we would just kind of talk about, like, what the different 
Kirtan artists were doing, you know, because some of them come in and flop and some of them would come in and crush, mm-hmm. you know, like they we'd have to like literally open the doors and have people sitting outside, you know, it was like 300 people in that room. Mm-hmm. And uh, so turns out that like Snotum and their people have their stuff really dialed in. They've got their shows like listed online, emailing to their community and uh, and advertising for their shows six months in advance. <sighs> turns out who's Snotum's daddy? used to be road manager for the Grateful Dead, (laughs) you know, tour manager, like forever. So like she comes into it, like honestly, and they just have their shit together, Mm -hmm. you know? So when you come in and like a lot of times with those kind of bands and you see, you kind of see this kind of variance also in every type of music where you got your bands that roll in, you know, five minutes early or whatever. And there's like, you know, they're missing a few things and they got just, you know, just what they can, they need to like eke through and make the show happen and stuff. And, you know, the advertising started like a week or two ago. Then you got this crew and they've been advertising for six months. They've got uh, a road crew. They come, they bring their own PA. They've got their own stage. Like for a Kirtan band, that's unbelievable. Right. You know, and they're, but, and they're rolling with like tip top talent. Right. The cats that play with them are insane. Yeah. So, like, that's a draw, too. Mm-hmm. So, like, a lot of that stuff, you know, like, getting out in front, like, shooting for the moon with talent, like, that's the things I picked up from them. Yeah. Yeah. Man, that's just a full-time job in itself, it seems like. It is. You know, I mean, that's all I do is just I'm on the phone and, you know, like, emailing people and just trying not to drop those balls. Right, right. Well, this uh, leads me to another question that I ask uh, people in your position for whom actually playing the drums is just one of many responsibilities and, and roles that they have. Do you do you find that, like, when you actually sit down and play the drums that, that you're you're like <laughs> a little bit unfamiliar with the drums. You've been focusing so much on other shit and the other end of it that, uh, you know, when it's actually time to play, you're like, Oh, wait a minute. Do, do I remember how to do this? Oh yeah. Well, you know, I had a couple of instances where there was like that where, and so now I, one of the things I have to kind of build in is uh, this is making me sound way more organized than I am. <laughs> but, uh, one of the things I have to build in is like, Oh, I've got a, you know, I've got a Steely Dan show coming up. So that means sometime that week I have to book time in a room and get in there and work on those, those songs. Mm-hmm. Or if I have another, you know, like, like I have Bill Withers show coming up. Well, and I'm playing guitar on that show. So I have to like book time. Okay, honey, take the kids, get out of the house because mm-hmm. I've got four hours with Bill Withers to work on, <sighs> you know, like that kind of shit. Yeah. And if I can get out in front of it a little bit, just make sure that, you know, I'm, I'm taking time to keep my hands together a little bit and, you know, so it's not like I haven't picked up the sticks in a week. Here we go. Right. Yeah. And you're you're right. It doesn't take hours and hours. You just kind of got to touch base with the drums and (laughs) be like, you remember me? I remember you. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. And it makes, you know, it feels like it makes a big difference if you can just get like a little pad workout in that Mm -hmm. day or something. So Mm -hmm. get your fulcrums together and whatever. Yeah. So it doesn't really kind of feel like that's that strange thing. But, you know, then there are other things where, you know, like I just have to make sure I work on them. Yeah. So like doing that, doing the Steve Gadd solo from Asia, it mm-hmm. just, you know, it's, it takes maintenance, you know, like to keep the muscle memory together. Do you, you play it, you play it note for note? I wouldn't say note for note, but I do as close as I can possibly get it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and it's, I, I figured it was going to be more interesting for the audience, but also, uh, less work for me in the in the long run to kind of uh, transcribe the solo and play it 
the way that it is on the record. Mm -hmm. Because one, nobody's doing it. Right. You know, and two, like, you know, if I have a bad night and the, the audience really like they suffer. Right. You know, like, oh, you know, and I watched, you know, a million takes of or different videos online of like Keith Carlock playing that song or like Dennis Chambers playing that song. Right. You know, and it's like there are definitely a couple of instances where it's like. I mean, of course, they're brilliant and everything they're playing is amazing, but it's like you can hear them kind of like trying to theme, stretch a theme together or something. And it's like, okay, if those guys are having a problem coming up with something to say every night, I think, right. uh, you know, let's just keep it easy. So yeah. like, at least I don't have to think about coming up with a solo every night. Right. You know, I can just play that awesome solo. Totally. That was already there. Yeah. And that's a, that's a good way to think about it because I've... Um, I, I did the same kind of thing when I played in a, I played in this retro swing band in LA and, um, we did, um, a song, uh, by, it was, it was a cozy cold drum solo. Oh yeah. Um, what was the name of that song? I'm blanking on it. I'll, I'll think of it. Um, but the, you know, there's a very specific, you know, Tom thing. It was almost like a sing, sing, sing kind of, kind That's of a thing, kind yeah. of vibe. And I got into this band and I was listening to this song and I was like, Oh cool. I get to stretch out a little bit. And then I got to the first rehearsal and, and Mondo, the band leader, was like, you need to play this solo note for note. And, you know, my jazz brain was like, fuck you, man. <laughs> I, like, I want to do my shit. I want to, you know. But, you know, the more I listen to that solo, the more I realize the same thing. Like, it works. It delivers for the audience every night. Um, it, it keeps me from turning, you know, turning that song into something it's not. Um, and, and I, I took the approach of, uh, like Michael, Michael Carvin talks about, uh, reciting love him rather than playing. Yes. Right. Love so I, as soon as, as soon as I heard him say that, I was like, Oh, I'm like, I'm reciting a poem. I'm delivering a thing. Right. Instead of improvising. It's very much more like a, like a classical yes. approach where, you know, so like memorizing the piece is the beginning. And, you know, so, and you're finding it's a much narrower bandwidth of expression, but there's still plenty of room. Right. You know, and nobody is ever going to mistake me for Steve Gadd. <laughs> you know, like I can practice nothing but Steve Gadd from now until I die. And I'm never, you know, like, I think that's a myth. You know, it's like, oh, you're going to sound back that one guy. It's right. Like, I wish. Right. <laughs> you know, right. so, but yeah, you're doing that. And also, but it takes a lot of your, uh, a lot of the sting out of a lot of different, like, psychological Affectors, Right. You know, so like you can, the, and I picked this up from Achilles Priester. I did this one tour with him and Tony McAlpine's band. And uh, so like right at the beginning of the tour, we had a night off and he, uh, and he's like, Hey, do you want to watch this? We're in the lounge on the bus. And, and it, he's, it's him at the modern drummer festival and Hudson had given him the, the DVD and he hadn't seen it yet. So we're watching it. And of course he's killing it. And, uh, and he's like, I trained very hard for this. And I said, well, what would you, what'd you do? And he says, uh, I practice for six hours a day for three months. And I was like, why? You know, for a 90 minute performance, yeah. you know? And so he was like, basically the gist, if I understood what was that he was trying to like really over prepare so that he could play through his nerves mm -hmm. because he said he was very, very nervous, mm -hmm. you know, and this is a guy that is like the most well-known drummer, possibly one of the most well-known musicians in Brazil. Mm -hmm. And so like people are just like buying reams of Mapex and Peisty gear because of this guy. Right. You know, and he like tours doing his clinics and takes care of his family. And, 
And so he can't go and step on his dick at the modern drama. Festival, <laughs> right. like, and so uh, and so he he that was his thing. He basically over prepare so he could play through the nerves. Yeah. And the me doing that Steve Gadd solo was the first instance of me like testing what that threshold was. Mm-hmm. So I started transcribing that solo when I was twenty one, and you know like been working on pieces of it over the years. And then when we first like. When, I don't know if you knew this, but the first, up until the summer before last, I was the singer in Yacht Rock Schooner. Right. I did know that. So, yeah. So I didn't take over. the, And we had the Steely Dan show in place at that time. So mm-hmm. the other drummer was playing it. Right. And um, we had something come up where he couldn't make a Steely Dan show, you know, maybe, uh, you know, a year before the, all the switches happened. And so I really, really practiced hard for about three months but it wasn't together in time, you know, mm-hmm. during a rehearsal with a uh, horn section and stuff, it was like, this just wasn't happening. And I knew that, you know, the, that it, at the showtime, I wasn't going to be able to deliver. So I left it out, but I kept working on it. Mm-hmm. So then, you know, so it'd been like another two years of fairly steady prep on that solo before we started, you know, advertising that we were going to do that with me on drums. Mm-hmm. Wow. So it's like there's a lot of over prep, you know, and get to the point where I'm like, okay, so I can play it with with a click, with no music, play it without a click, with no music, play it at like 60 BPM, play it up to tempo, start practicing it at like 140, 150, 160, yeah. like going through and hitting all the big phrases at that tempo, at those like different tempos, and then start playing like other songs. Like, so I'll be listening to Hey 19 and play the solo from Asia over that. Wow. So you don't get, you know, like, basically like trying to practice people throwing bricks at your head. Right. <laughs> so you don't lose track. Yeah, yeah. Know? And so, you know, and it's still, after all that, it still doesn't come off perfect or anything mm-hmm. every night. But, uh, you know, it's, I've been happy with the results. Yeah, yeah. And that, I mean, that's a lot of hours. That's in, in terms of, like, song prep. This is another thing I wanted to talk to you, talk to you about is just learning songs. Because in, in the last two years since I've come here, I've, I've done a lot more gigs where... You know, like a lot of the gigs I did before in LA and Kansas City were reading gigs. Mm-hmm. You know, you'd either read the chart or you play with somebody enough that you just like memorize their arrangements and whatever. But in Atlanta, I've been doing these cover band gigs, these tribute shows, and you got to learn oftentimes a big number of songs in a short amount of time. And I've I've found that you know, for me, there's just no substitute for over and over and over. Listen to it over and over and over. Play it over and over and over. Um, Are you so, making charts for that stuff? Sometimes, yeah. yeah. A lot I of the times, I'll start. I'll start with like a cheat sheet or a chart that I just write out for myself. And if if I don't have that much time to prepare, then you know I might end up using the chart or the cheat sheet on the gig. But ideally, I, I don't want to. Right. You know. I I love that. Yeah. I think that's good because I think it's really pro. You know, sometimes you see cats and every gig they're on, they got charts. Which is, you know, it's fine, but I, I love that it does add something to the show. Yeah. And and, and also in your execution. Totally. You know, it's like you're not buried in the chart. You you kind of know where what's going on on the stage. But do you find that uh, once you've made a reasonably detailed chart, you don't need it? Yes. You know, there's the process of committing it to memory. Yes. Part, that's part of it. And like, part, you know, part of my memorization of the song becomes the mental image of the chart. Right, you know, you know, and you remember. Oh, uh, when I was writing that, oh, I remember that part. Yeah, you know, and I kind of have a process I go through where it's like, 
if it's and part of it is that uh, I have such a huge listening experience. You know, mm-hmm. my dad was a musician, uh, even though he wasn't a pro, but um, he uh, like a huge music fan. My mom's a huge music fan. Lots of music in the house, like a lot of us. And so a lot of the shit that I play all the time now was stuff I listened to growing up. So it's in there already. Mm-hmm. So, but it's pretty rare that I come across like something that's not a modern song that I don't already know mostly. But mm-hmm. when we get there, you know, it's like if I'm starting from the beginning, then I'll listen down and uh, kind of sketch the form. You know, like uh, intro, verse, chorus, whatever. Yeah. And then, like, if I'm if I have a second to do figures, I'll do the intro figure and the and the closing figures. Mm-hmm. So I got the start, I got the end, and I've got a rough version of the form. Mm-hmm. Now that can get me through ninety percent of the gigs. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, especially if there's not a ton of stops or anything. Right. And then I'll go back through if I have a minute, one more like kind of slow stop and start listen and flesh in some details. You know, and that will get you through 98% of the right. gigs, you know, and then the rest of it is kind of like your personal stuff. Like I haven't had a band leader that wanted me to do more detail than that, but I've often wanted to do more detail than that on my own. Right. So then I would go through and like find technical passages that might be difficult that I would work on or uh, make sure that I'm getting, you know, like if it's a vintage recording, like trying to understand exactly what's happening. Yeah. Oh, that's not... And a fuche that's actually like left foot on the high hat, <laughs> shit like that, right? You know, so and just kind of like trying to work that stuff in. Yeah, on gigs where you're drumming and singing, is is learning the drum part and learning the lyrics twice the amount of work, or do they kind of reinforce each other? It's twice the amount of work. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because like you do, you have to repeat the process again with the vocal. Yeah, unless you already know it. Right. Which again is like, uh, it's a really good chance that I know one piece or the other well enough to not think about it a whole lot, Mm -hmm. you know, but, um, doing them together, you know, like there's still things that kind of best me where uh, I'm, uh, the lifetime project has been able to try and sing late in the evening and play it, (laughs) you know, because it's so syncopated. It's just like, when I get that, I feel like, okay, I can stop. But, uh, you know, other things were like playing Babylon sisters and singing it. Mm -hmm. Now the, um, the vocal is so, you know, it's so unique, like Fagan's vocal phrasing, particularly the rhythmic phrasing and just a lot of the expressiveness uh-huh. is very, uh, very deliberate, very distinct. But I have, you know, like a lot of people, a lot of history with that record. Right. You know, so like I could always just sing along with it. I know the whole thing. And, you know, so I don't really have to think about executing the vocal too much so I can kind of like turn some of the ram back towards executing the drum part. Right. You know, which is, you know, as my, as I get older, my ears get better and I hear more and more things that I'm missing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, and you mentioned like the expressiveness of, of singing and that, you know, I, I hadn't really thought about that before as it pertains to drumming and singing, because all I think about is the coordination. Like I'm going to, I'm going to nail this drum beat. I'm going to, you know, nail the melody and remember all the words. And you know, that's, that's a plus in my book. But then you mentioned, you know, on, on, on top of that or underneath that, a deeper layer is the expressiveness and the emotion and the inflection in the singing. Mm-hmm. You have um, to sell it. Yeah. You really yeah. get in there to sell it. And that's the thing, you know, it's like that takes some ram. 
Right. You know, to really get in there and sell it and just kind of like dig into your own thing and find your heart and then bring it back out. Yeah. And, you know, and I definitely found a huge, that was a bit of a curve for me uh, just to do it more coming back to the kit, you know, and we have really good singers. And part of the reason why I hired the guys that we have, like, you know, Cleve, I don't know if you know Doug, but like those guys leave it all out there every night. And that's the way that I like to approach it. It's like, I don't care if I blow it out. Like, you're going to know that I meant every piece of it. Yeah. And uh, they are like that as well. Has singing and drumming led you to, to influences? Like, have you gotten really deep into a singer and then as a result, uh, been influenced by a drummer or drummers or the other way around? Huh. I would have to say that without a doubt, yes, but it's hard to think of a specific example yeah. just now. You know, like uh, I keep getting back into Donald Fagan as a singer. Mm-hmm. You know, even like it's really easy to just kind of dismiss him as having a funny sounding voice. Right. You know, but like if you. Same uh, with Getty Lee. Exactly. Or, you know, a number of singers. But yeah, I, sorry to interrupt you, but it, it bugs me that, you know, people are like I, I don't like, I don't like the sound of his voice. And I'm like, yeah, but listen to his singing. Like what he's actually doing. Right. Yeah. Like, and that's pretty insane. And like this, the, just kind of like the, the depth of musicality that, that he's putting into, you know, the vocal is really insane. Like, we, and you really, it definitely comes out when you have to try to do it. You're yeah. like, oh, I didn't get, you know, that phrase is this. And it's very, you know, very, but also stuff like, like Josie in the chorus. Like mm-hmm. he's singing a high A. Josie comes home. Mm-hmm. Like that is way the fuck up there. Right. You know, his range was really, really, really good. And I think like getting into, you know, like the the depth of him as a singer was something that I hadn't really explored before. Right. I thought, ah, oh, Steely Dan's gonna be easy to sing. Right. Because <laughs> you had been approaching it from the drummers, like you had been getting into all these drummers, and then it led you to like, oh, Donald Fagan is a thing. Sure, but also like coming into when we first put the Steely Dan show together, I was doing it as a vocalist and kind of directing the show that way. But so I was concentrating a lot more on what Fagan was doing. And um, realizing, you know, like, and Yacht Rock's a hard show to sing. Yeah. A lot of very high tenor stuff. Yeah. And so I'm like, that's going to be easy, you know. And then it's like, no, it wasn't easy at all. <laughs> you know, like, just getting it together where you're, like, singing it in tune and you're hitting the notes the way that he is, it's it's tough. Yeah, yeah. It's it's kind of a pitfall, I think, of, of some cover bands is, like, you know, they put this set list together. And they're like, oh, these songs are awesome. This is, you know, all the, all the hits. But... but I think what people forget is like that, you know, those set lists, like the typical 80s cover band set list or 70s or, you know, kind of what you do, like those are some of the most iconic, unbelievable human voices ever. Mm-hmm. And and I think, you know, singers or band leaders or whatever don't always take into account like, can we really do this? Should we really do this? Mm-hmm. You know, because if you can't do it justice, you know, my wife says people know these songs. People sing along with these songs. And if, right. if, you know, if they don't feel like the person delivering it is really delivering it, then then you're in trouble. <laughs> right. Yeah. And we would always like, for me, I, my, our policy is that, like if we I come off of a little bit lately, but like if you can't do it in a native key, you need to pick another song, mm, you know, yeah. and, and because like people do like you, they can't really tell you that's what they noticed, but they do notice, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, and plus, you know, you as a singer, you fall into the pitfall of it's like, OK, so Robert Plant didn't have to sing Getty Lee later in the set. 
you know, like it's right. like you know, you get these like really kind of aberrations of vocalists, but then you're gonna pile them all together and do some of each of them, right? You know, in, <laughs> in one set, you know. So yeah. it's just like you know, we're doing uh, like Pablo Cruz, and like there's a lot of sky and stuff in there, and then turn around and do some Michael Jackson, and then right. turn around and do some uh, Gary Wright, mm-hmm. you know, and it's like making all that stuff happen would really wear your ass out. Yeah, yeah. So man. Cover bands out there, be careful, man. Be careful. <laughs> it ain't as easy as it looks. Be, be judicious. <laughs> so where do you go to find a treasure trove of information about vintage drums, custom drums, and legendary drummers? NotSoModernDrummer.com Since 1988, Not So Modern Drummer is an institution dedicated to researching and documenting the history of modern drums, the art of drum building, and the legendary drummers who play them. The writers and contributors are some of the top vintage and custom drum experts from around the world. Not So Modern Drummer serves as an online gathering place and marketplace for the worldwide community of drummers who buy and sell, collect, preserve, and play these instruments. It also hosts drum-related events that are attended by drummers from all over the world. This website is easy and fun to explore, and the monthly digital magazine subscription is free. So check out NotSoModernDrummer.com. Well, speaking of leaving it all out there, we were talking about Levon. Uh, oh. We were talking about Levon Helm on on Facebook the other day because um, I I just did this uh, this last waltz tribute show and I was aware of the band's music like I had heard it before and I was kind of aware of Levon as a as a drummer and a singer but I had never really dug into it um, in a in a deep way and man it just it blew me away. He's it, fantastic. Is he? Has he been one of your guys, like, in, as far as drumming and singing? You know, I had a similar situation where I was aware of him, and I always really admired what he was doing and stuff. And um, it was probably last year at this time, um, uh, I got a call from Robbie Dupree. You know, like, steal away Robbie Dupree. Uh-huh. Yeah, and, yeah. and he was, you know, he's friends with the guys that were in Levon's band. Mm-hmm. And so they have a thing called The Wait. Mm-hmm. Which is, uh, it was basically like everybody in the band, like after the last waltz. So it's like the second lineup of the band. Mm-hmm. And all these guys were also in Levon's solo band. Mm-hmm. And so since Levon passed, they had been just kind of, you know, touring with another guy drumming and singing, but they were looking for another Levon. And so I dug in, you know, like I was, they wanted to, you know, see if I could do the thing. And I was like, wow, this is a great fit. Robbie was like, this is a great fit, you know. And, um, but I was like really swamped with a lot of work. So I wasn't able to really communicate to them uh, kind of what I could do. But that's an aside, I had an excuse that I really needed to get into this music. Yeah. So I dug into like four or five pieces, like really, really hard. And it takes like, and now I'm kind of got like, you know, it's a five hour study to like bring both the vocal and the drums up to, okay, like I'm gonna get 99% of what's on the take. Yeah. And um, the thing that struck me, uh, you know, one about like, you know, he has a really interesting kind of combination of feel and martial chops, mm-hmm. you know, but also like a bass drum placement and how much he had in common with kind of the, where Bonham was placing it. Yep. You know, like very heavy downbeat, like yep. really popping it right in the middle and just driving from there. You know, and then, but just, I love the sound of his vocal. Yeah. And, you know, I'm, I'm from, I think he's from Louisiana, but I'm, it's Arkansas. Arkansas, yeah. right? So I'm from 
uh, Louisiana, New Orleans. Right, but your neighbors. My family is from like Charles. You know, so like I didn't know you were from New Orleans. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Man, that's we we gotta like extend the interview now because I have more. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I've been moved here when I was a teenager, and uh, but so like it was really cool, like hearing a lot of like that home in his voice, yeah. and trying to really get you know like make sure I'm singing all the vowel sounds the same as he does it, mm-hmm. and the placement, and really trying to memorize it all, and then it really didn't come to anything because I really wasn't able to record any of it to the satisfaction of those guys, you know, they got somebody else and it turned out to be the best thing anyway. But, mm-hmm. uh, it was really fun to get in there and do like, don't do it. Yeah. And do, um, up on cripple Creek, but like really like dig into it Yeah, and do, I've been, everybody does Ophelia. I've been doing that for years, mm-hmm. you know, and a few more things. I was fascinated with the more uptempo stuff that they did. Like, like, uh, uh, stage fright and, um, you know, W.S. Walcott's medicine show yeah. and, and, uh, this wheels on fire. Uh-huh. Um, because like his, you know, the, the thing that, that grabbed me immediately about his drumming was just all his right hand stuff. Mm-hmm. He's got like a jazz player's right hand. Mm-hmm. There's all kinds of ding, dig ding, dig ding, ding, dig ding, ding. And it's, you don't hear that a lot in, you know, in rock or like in Americana music, it's more sparse, but like he had this busy right hand, Especially on the bell, mm-hmm. on that he had like a little sixteen-inch. Yeah, I don't know what the hell that small was. Small cymbals and yeah. small sticks. Yeah, kind of a light touch mm-hmm. for as heavy as the kick and snare could be. Right, you like you watch him play, and it's like a, a pretty light touch, but the feel is heavy. Yes, it's bizarre. I don't know how he did it. I don't and know. just like hunched over, turned to the right. Uh-huh. You know, I don't, I don't know how many hours he spent in that position, drumming and singing, but it just makes my back hurt watching it. I know, um, right? <laughs> but still, it looked so cool. Yeah, you know, like with and. His whole thing, like, it just kind of seemed to really suit his whole aura, like, the way that, you know, they would put him on the side stage most of the time. And right. You could really, like, just see him, and he was all this kind of, he had this this gravitas, right? you know, like, where it's like, man, you just unquestionable, like, uh, authority, and, like, and then, again, another vocalist that would just, like, put every single thing into every note. right. Right, just singing like his life depended on it, man. Yeah, every song. I was watching, a, uh, he was on Letterman like in the 80s, um, just to chit-chat because he'd been doing a little acting and, and whatever. But Letterman asked him about, um, you know, is it is it hard to play drums and sing at the same time? And, you know, a, a lot of times, a lot of people that I've asked that question to or who I've I've heard answer that question are like, oh, you know, you practice it and you get used to it and, you know, it's it's okay. And Levon said, it's incredibly hard. <laughs> Like, I'm still trying to figure it out. And that made sense because I immediately thought of just like the concentration and kind of the just the soul and the 100% of himself that he's putting into playing and singing. Mm-hmm. You know, he's not emoting very much. He's not moving around very much. He's kind of closing his eyes a lot of the time. And you can tell, like, it's taken his whole self to to make this happen. It's a thing when you're trying to, like, make sure you're remembering the lyric and you're listening to intonation mm-hmm. and you're trying and work and mic technique, but you're also really trying to make sure that that bass drum figure is solid, <laughs> right. you know, and that the backbeat doesn't drift, you know, like, and everything's still popping mm-hmm. and trying to listen to yeah. the band at the same time. There are certain parts of it still where you are like, my attention will, uh, you know, like when I'm normally playing, it's out here a lot, mm-hmm. you know, and then when I'm like singing a difficult or like there's a lot of syncopation between the two parts going on, like it just comes in 
and then it goes out again. Right. You know, and you know, like I'll have these moments where uh, if I, I I'll be like, did I lose any time there? Like you know, like I won't won't really remember clearly about what was happening in the drums. Mm-hmm. You know, or like I won't really remember clearly if I nailed like transitional pitches. You know, mm-hmm. like all those passing tones, and I'd be like. Eh. Was that bad? You know, or, you know, asking somebody. I'm always asking people, like, how'd that sound? And they're like, man, it's fine. Yeah, yeah, right, right. And it's you know, it's a different kind of stage presence because I think whether whether you're talking about drumming or singing or or playing guitar or whatever, there's there's the kind of stage presence that like that takes up the whole stage, you know, that moves around and that that reaches out to the audience and brings them in. And and I I love like Ruby Vell has that kind of thing, yes. you know. But there's also the kind of stage presence like like Levon or like you or like um, you know who I can't think of other people at, the, at this time but you know the kind of stage presence that is just focused and solid and just kind of occupying the space mm-hmm. you know um, there's something compelling about that there is well and I think that that's what like makes our favorite players so great like you know Gad's presence you know mm-hmm. on the kit you know it's just like um it was interesting. Uh, I was talking with Jonathan Mover about Steve Gadd, and he said, you know, he was doing a, um, they were doing a session at Skyline when when he used to have that in New York, mm-hmm. and there was like, you know, uh, Mover was on the record, and so was uh, Gadd and like El Negro and a couple other dudes, and uh, but Mover was also engineering the record, so he says I have this really cool old um, superstar. You know, like Birch superstars from the 80s, you know, 10, 12, 13, 16. And so, like, I did my tracks, you know, Rack Tom's up, Floor Tom. And then, okay, so Gad comes in and we just, you know, move everything down one, make that 13, the first Floor Tom. Mm-hmm. Same drums, same snare drum, same cymbals, you know, and then he goes in there and plays a track and it sounds like every Steve Gad record ever, <laughs> you know. And, and he's like, how the fuck did you do that? And he goes in the room and sits down in the kit and tries to play some Steve Gad licks and he's like, you know, what the fuck you know and it's like it's so much in like just that it's, it's tough to, to, to describe what it is but like that that connection between you know like the whole body and into the stick like into the note like every single note is really deliberate yeah you know even the little stuff is just super deliberate you're not throwing anything away right and that ability to kind of really hyper focus yeah. I mean, it seems like hyper focus to us, but you know, like to Steve Gadd, that's just the way Steve Gadd is, probably. Right. And that's the thing about Levon, like there is zero waste. There is zero excess. Like, yeah. The fat is trimmed, there there aren't extra drum notes, there aren't extra vocal runs. It's just like what the song needs uh hundred percent into that. Yeah. I really love that about him. Yeah. It's you know, uh you know the comedian uh, Bill Burr? Yeah. He's like a you know, a weekend warrior drummer. Um, oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, he's he's super into drums. Um, and he was talking to Mark Marin about how he, you know, like because Bonham is his guy. Uh-huh. Uh huh. And he was like, uh, you know, yeah, like I got I got super into Bonham, and uh, you know, I got the I got the set he had. I got the vintage Ludwig Vista Light, you know, with the big twenty six inch bass drum and the the peisty cymbals. I even got the hi hat stand that he had, you know. And you know what? I still sounded like. Me. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Well, yeah, and Mover told me another story about that. Well, it was in his magazine. You know, Dave Maddox. He's a British drummer. Dude, get uh-huh. it. Okay. He's, uh, 
just a legend. But so he was really tight with Bonham. Mm-hmm. And so he was over having dinner with him one night. And we're talking about the same thing, like sounds in your hands. And he's at Bonham's house. They're having dinner. And he's like, I got to show you something, this groove I'm working on. And so they go downstairs after dinner. And he's got like a, like a toy drum set for Jason. And he sits down and plays. And, you know, Maddox was just like, because it's like this little baby kid and it sounds like Bonham. Yeah. You know, it's in his hands. Right. You know, and like, and just it's in him. Yeah. You know, just like, ha- like making it that thing where it's like, you know, I think that's what people are talking about when they're talking about your sound. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like it becomes a thing where you can just take it wherever you go. Yeah. And guitarists talk about this all the time. Like, you know, because guitarists are such tone freaks and they're constantly chasing like a thing. But I think, you know, it's, 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 um, an idea among guitarists for a long time that, that you can have all the gadgets you want and the strings and whatever, but at the end of the day, the sound is in your hands. Yes. And I, I think that's just as true for drummers. Um, and I think it's, it's something that we should talk more about. Um, and, you know, not, not constantly be trying to get the gear or transcribe the thing, like just figure out what sound is in your hands. Oh, totally. Um, Cause you're not like, you're not playing the piano. You're mm-hmm. not playing the drum set. Mm-hmm. You're playing you. Mm-hmm. Like what you're trying to do is get your body to do stuff. Right. You're not really trying to get the drum set to do it. Yeah. You know, you're trying <laughs> to get your body to do yeah, it. Yeah. You know, so it's like, that's the thing that you got to wrestle with is mm-hmm. you is you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What's it? Um, oh, I got to, I'll, I'll think of his name in a minute, but he's a, um, a really brilliant, uh, Halpern, um, uh, he's a brilliant improvisational teacher that teaches in, uh, I think it's still in New York. Um, was it Kenny? Um, oh, Hal Galper. Hal Galper. That's yeah, it. Yeah. Exactly. And so that was something that he said. And I was like, oh, you know, and he was like, I, I was watching him do, a, you know, like an improvisation clinic and, uh, you know, it's teaching it on piano. And, you know, he's like, okay, who's got, you know, like a lick that you're kind of working on or whatever. And, um, you know, you know, come on up here to the piano. We'll start working on this thing. And he says, you know, like I was watching this, you know, I was on tour one time and I'm watching this TV show before we had to leave the hotel room. And, and there's an interview with Dizzy Gillespie, you know, and they're asking him, you know, like, hey, you know, Dizzy, what are you thinking about when you're soloing and stuff? And, you know, and Dizzy's like, well, you know, a lot of people think that, you know, if I'm playing like in my head, I'm going, da, do, do, da, da, do, do, da, da. But really, it's more like, you know, it's really like intensely focused thought. Yeah. And so, you know, Galper, then he takes a student and he's, she's like, okay, you know, give me a lick that you've been working on, you know, like a, a two, five, one kind of tournament thing. And, and she's like, uh, okay. And she plays it out. Okay. That's fun. And I said, okay, now, you know, just sit there for a second and like shout the phrase in your head as loud as you can. And then just kind of go in. And she goes and plays it again. And it's like transformed. Mm. You know, all of a sudden, it's like there's so much more in it. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and, and you can like break it down to each note and what she did with it. But still, it's like there, there's so many like unexpressible tangibles yeah. that she's putting into each note but with that kind of deliberate thing. Right. More more deliberate intention Behind, behind everything. Very this much is so. one, of the, one of the things I'm working on with, with one of my students. He's a, an adult student. Uh, he's like probably in his 50s and just kind of a hobbyist weekend warrior. He plays in a Grateful Dead cover band. 
Um, and one of the th- first things I noticed about his playing was that he kind of throws fills away. Mm-hmm. And I think it's it's really common among drummers. Like even some pros, like I've been guilty of it. You just kind of like you you check out during a film, mm-hmm. and your your muscle memory is just like, oh, I'll just move to the right now. And you're you're already thinking about later, right? Yeah, right. And so it made me think about my own playing, my own fills, about like just being deliberate, like having a clear, loud picture of it in your head as you play it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but also add the way that it sounds, way it should sound against the meter as well so like you also have a clear picture in your head of the meter as it relates to what you're doing right you know like hearing like grooving your fills Jeff Carl yeah yeah you know like and that kind of deliberateness I think it's something that people and I see it in everything too so like I teach yoga you know and one of the things I'm always telling the students is I'm like listen try not to throw anything away. You know, so like, say you're transitioning from one post to another and it's real easy to just kind of like think of, okay, I need to get to this position. Right. You know, but like there's so much to be had in that, those moments that you're transitioning, Mm -hmm. like, and really kind of dialing in, what am I doing? Right. How do I get there? Yeah. Yeah, And like, how do I, exactly. So, you know, and it really helps to kind of like keep you on, like to milk as much as you can out of it. I want to talk to you about this this yoga thing. Okay. Um, and I, I want to talk about how it pertains to you physically and playing and all that stuff. But if if I'm not mistaken, your your yoga practice is not just like a healthy yoga practice thing. It's part of a larger spiritual totally uh, journey for you, right? Yeah. I think it's more that than a healthy thing, <laughs> right? You know, because like my my personal practice is not really on these days, but. And it really, I mean, I just I don't have a ton of discipline. You know, <laughs> but, you know, um, it, you know, it was one of those things that kind of like happened in my life. And and then I kind of looked up and I was like, oh, wow, I'm in the middle of this yoga thing. And but like, it's really hard to argue with the results. Like, mm-hmm. I, I, you know, back in the at the around the time of my life when I started getting into it, you know, I was like a um, I had gone on like this really kind of uh, and it, and in, it, there's a lot of hindsight involved. But, you know, like I was. Um, very like insecure coming out of my teen years and it really manifested itself in a lot of terrible ways and um, so I was just really mixed up and I had gotten to this point um, where I was like trying to kind of like get it back together and uh, I had become like a bit of a gym rat like I was you know running a ton and, mm-hmm. um, and so I met a girl that uh, and so she and I were like gym rats together and you know um, and that didn't really work out but like one of the things was we lived near a yoga studio and she drugged me like kicking and screaming to try this yoga class. And so I tried it and it whooped our asses so bad that we turned in our gym memberships literally the next day, <laughs> you know, and within six months, like she's teaching, yeah. I'm doing like six classes a week over there. But you know, like I was 30 and mm-hmm. you know, it's like I do six classes a week of power yoga and I just kind of got we getting into it, but I didn't really realize at the time I was kind of dimly aware of. Um, it was touching something kind of deeper in me Mm -hmm. and, uh, and I really dug, I really dug the, um, comprehensiveness of yoga as a system, you know? So like I kind of started getting deeper into that stuff and it led me, you know, uh, and the same girl led me to my teachers now and eventually like my guru, you know, and like, I'm still with this community that I, you know, ended up there with because, 
Um, well, one, because they brought me to this, like the deepest place in myself that, you know, like really kind of showed me a way to get there. But two, that they're very much, um, the teachers very much walk the talk, mm. you know, so like that really kind of, kind of kept me interested instead of, you know, that sort of thing. And I eventually found that what I was trying to do is figure out who I was mm-hmm. and, uh, the insecurities were kind of coming from this thing of, um, I don't really know who I am. I don't really have a clear idea how to see myself or how others see me. And I found in uh, some of these people uh, a, a really highly polished mirror, hmm. you know, where and part of what I wanted to do was put myself in front of like an old school guru, spiritual teacher and, you know, and just see what happened, mm-hmm. you know, like see somebody that could see anything and what would they say to me? Right. You know, and <laughs> so it, it's a real it, this is a moment of real grace in my life because uh, Manjaya Sati Bhagavati my guru, she passed away in 2012, but like, she was like the real deal and like old school guru. And at the same time, like she had a really kind of non-traditional relationship with her students in that, you know, like somebody like Sacha Sai Baba or, uh, um, Swami Muktananda or whatever might have thousands of followers, Mm -hmm. you know, they, but Ma knew the name of everybody that she taught, Mm -hmm. you know, hundreds of kids, but like, she was also like this real fierce, force of nature to fight for people that nobody was fighting for mm-hmm. you know and i loved that about her i just loved watching her help people and that really appealed to me so anyway i get and i get into this and i discover there's so much more to yoga like the physical practice the stretching and whatever is li- literally just an eighth but most people aren't even doing that to the degree that it needs to be even to be full there and so like if uh, in uh, classical yoga, like uh, Patanjali's yoga, um, it has eight parts, arguably four, maybe five of those parts have to do with meditation. Mm-hmm. And so like therein was like a ton of work for me. Right. And if, if I'm not mistaken, like yoga, as we understand it today, originated as, as kind of a, a physical accompaniment to mental, emotional, spiritual meditation. Yeah, it's like it's a piece of like the stuff that we do in America. You know, you go to a gym, do some yoga, right? That's like really one piece of a comprehensive system. Mm -hmm. You know, and so they have um, have eight parts. They have the yamas and the niyamas, which are uh, moral and ethical observances, and they're not like rules. In uh, explain more about it in a second, but then asana, which is the physical practice, pranayama is the is breath work, so controlling the breath, mm-hmm. um, and then uh, dharana, dhyana, um, pratyahara, excuse me, pratyahara, which is sense withdrawal, dharana, which is concentration, dhyana, which is one pointed focus when you're really dialing it in, and then samadhi, which is transcendence. Jesus, right? So there's this thing. <laughs> I know it's like, but I mean, it's it's deep, man. It's a it's, lot. It's very comprehensive. Yeah, and they're all kind of. It's not it, it to a degree. It's progressive, mm-hmm. but um, but also like anywhere in those first four or five, you can kind of get in and then explore. And the like, what it's really designed for is to help you learn how to be happy. Mm. You know, so like everybody kind of has a baseline mood or happiness Mm -hmm. and yoga like consistent practice really kind of helps to raise that baseline Mm -hmm. and so you're not constantly um taken off your center 
by the good and the bad things in life, mm-hmm. you know, and you really, uh, and you learn to kind of like detach from both of them. And what that helps for me, not in like a, a sterile, like I'm just don't care about anything thing, but like where something really awesome happens, like it can really turn your head around and skew your perspective about a lot of things. Whereas, and, and you can kind of like really not enjoy it as much mm-hmm. because, you know, you're so like overwhelmed with how awesome it is. Right. You or, know? you know, if, if your, your expectation of that awesome thing is, is beyond what it actually is. Right. Yeah. yeah you can like, so whatever, like your mind can take you. And the same thing on the other end, it's like something that bad that happens can be made a lot worse by like just, you know, letting it take you out of your center. Right. You know, so right. you, know, you can suffer a lot more. So uh, it really has helped me both like deal with crisis better and then also like deal with joy better, like really enjoy things in my life a lot better and just kind of be okay with and discovering like who I am and all that. Right. Right. This reminds me of my, you know, my, my wife has been a stabilizing force for me emotionally in many ways, but she spends a lot of her time convincing me that, that a a, a given stimulus is not as good or not as bad as I think it is. (laughs) That's really the idea. You know, I'll, I'll let something run, run away with me, you know, good or bad. Uh, and she has to bring me back like, no, it's, you know, we're still kind of in the middle here. Don't get carried away. You know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Don't get ahead of yourself. Right. Yeah, the whole thing. Yeah. And it's kind of like, uh, so through working with Ma and working with Swami Jayadevi, uh, Swami Jayadevi runs the Kashi Atlanta here in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, they've both been so crucial in my life. And, you know, they, they, the two of them together married me and my wife and, mm-hmm. you know, like been part of the community forever and very happily so. And they kind of like you're looking at the ego, but in more of an Eastern sense. So it's kind of like the ego is the part of your mind that doesn't want you to change. Mm-hmm. You know, it's very it loves familiarity, you know, and it loves to be in those groups, no matter how painful that it is. Right. You know, and so the ego mind really wants you to be small. It wants you to panic. It And the ego mind wants you to use your mind. You know, and it really it's kind of like putting the cart in front of the horse because so if I, you know, like there, it, it presupposes that there is like something else in there. Like mm-hmm. there is some prime mover that directs your mind. And when you kind of like reorient the whole package where it's like the mind is a tool, just like the body and you don't let it drive the bus, then you kind of start seeing uh, it, that it has its own uh, in it's, it has its own conditioning that comes from not really anything other than just noise, right? You know, like media noise or just like life noise and things like that. Right. And you know, you know, they. I'm not sure how they would measure these things, but they do say that ninety something percent of the thoughts that you think every day are thoughts that you thought yesterday. <laughs> right? You don't have new thoughts, right? You know, so and it's right. like this is kind of like being able to kind of step back from your own thoughts and observe them, observe your own reactions, and then kind of take, uh, you act instead of react. Right. Right. It's, and it's amazing how, if, if you think about it, you know, the, the, the patterns that your mind goes through are, are familiar ones, because like you said, the mind, you know, finds these grooves that it keeps going back to. And, and I think, you know, to, to, to the mind, to the unconscious, Something, you know, the familiar is always preferable to the unknown. Right. Even if the familiar sucks. 
Sucks bad. Yeah. <laughs> totally. You know, even if it's some pathology that you've been dealing with for years, like you're, if you don't kind of consciously redirect it, your mind will always go back there because that's what it does. Totally. It's, it's an electric impulse, basically. Yeah. And, and it's this habit, you know? Yeah. So, and Ma and Swami, uh, really have these brilliant, you know, and none of this is like stuff that they came up with. Uh, this is all in, you know, in the, the scriptures and the yoga texts, but their understanding of this stuff is so deep that they're able to kind of like, um, reiterate it in a way that's very easy to understand and apply, mm-hmm. particularly Ma Jaya, who had this like otherworldly knowledge of spiritual text. Like she could just riff on something from any text yeah. at any point. Yeah. And, uh, it's kind of amazing. But, um, and so Ma would talk about karmic spaces where it's like these, um, you know, and there's a thread of fear that runs through all of them, but there are these things that you would like, you just kind of like land in and you find yourself making decisions from a perspective of jealousy or a perspective of anger or mm-hmm. a perspective of self-indulgence or, you know, uh, abuse of power, mm-hmm. things like that. And she would, you know, like very like succinctly talk about like how to deal with those things, you know, and for most of them in general, she would talk about it. When she first started talking about it, it was, she was like, these are like these cubby holes, you know, where you go in and there's really only one way to come out. You turn around and go back out. Mm. And so you, you do have to kind of like face, you know, identify and face, oh, this is a jealousy thing. You know, mm-hmm. okay, how do I deal with that? Mm-hmm. And then like turn around and face that and go back out. And just having, you know, there's a lot, even if you fuck it up and do it sloppily, which I do, you know, like, and I'm still in, you know, like, I'm definitely not trying to act like I've mastered any of this, but, you know, uh, it, even in the process, you're learning so much. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so Ganesh is not the name your mama gave you. No, it's not. (laughs) When, when did, when did that come about and what significance does that name have? Um, so, uh, that was probably July, 2001. Okay. And, um, it's, it was an initiation, uh, between me and my guru, Mahajaya. Mm-hmm. And, um, so she named me Ganesh Giri and later added Jaya, which means victory. And, uh, Ganesha is the aspect of the divine that removes obstacles mm-hmm. and Giri means mountain. So, um, and she was funny when like, she, she named me. She's like, I don't think I have another Ganesh Giri anywhere in the teaching. And she said, with a name like that, you better fucking be real. <laughs> she's really like very serious about it. Yeah. You know, but um, and for me, it's just like, well, and her commitment, she used to always say about the name giving thing was like, um, she said, that's my commitment to you to take you to God this lifetime mm. or keep coming back until you go. Hmm. And I always thought that, you know, like it's, you know, there's a lot in that statement, but I never, uh, I always believed it a hundred percent and I still do, mm-hmm. you know, there's a lot of things in there and she really was just really, uh, a, a very hard to describe the influence that she's had on my life and yeah. still does. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so like that was a commitment between us where, you know, like I gave my heart totally to her and mm-hmm. I still do, you know, and in, in that, um, I, you never, I never trusted anybody the way that I trusted ma. Mm-hmm. And it was a, it's a really beautiful relationship. You know, you hear about, um, guru Chela relationships 
But when you hear about him, it's like, oh, Maharish Mahashyogi slept with me and Pharaoh, you know, or like, you know, this guy was like balling his students or stealing from their pensions or whatever. Mm -hmm. And you really don't hear cats talk a lot about like how good that relationship can be Mm -hmm. if somebody's doing it right. Right. You know, so there are, there are hucksters in, in every faith, apparently. Right. And they tend to be, you know, yeah. And it tends to make headlines yeah, when it happens, right, you know. Right. So, but you don't hear too many people like going to the newspaper telling them about how awesome it was to study with Manjaya Sati Bhagavati. But, you know, she has a lot of famous students, uh, one of whom, like Arlo Guthrie, mm-hmm. um, Julia Roberts, you know, yeah. that, like, and these are people that just kind of like, they don't make a big deal about, uh, you know, about Ma, but like, uh, at the same time, you know, like I would see Arlo all the time on the ashram because, you know, it was just, we were guru by, you know, we had the same guru and, and it was never a weird thing. Yeah. And he's just an awesome dude. Right. Right. And, uh, that, I think that, that, um, for me, the, the name is like this gift where it's like, you're trying, like, what did she see in me? Like she doesn't right. talk about it. Right. You know? what, what does this name mean and how can I live up to it? How can yeah. I embody it? You know, and you just kind of like, whoa, you know, and so this was that thing again where I was like, this was what the reflection that I saw and that she named it. Uh-huh. And, and I was like, wow, what the, what does this mean? <laughs> and just kind of kept, you know, it's like a, a thing that you kind of work with your whole life. Mm-hmm. Still kind of trying to work with, how to be like, what does it mean to be that? And how to, how to be that, Yeah, you know? And, uh, when she added Jaya was like, that was definitely a pivotal point where it was kind of like, okay, I had definitely like taken another step in terms of really becoming who I, you know, who I am really, Mm -hmm. whatever that means. Right. Right. So how has this practice, uh, in, you know, affected your, your music life? Because, you know, there's obviously the, the physical aspect of it, but you, you know, you mentioned dealing with jealousy and, and all these, you know, emotions that can negatively affect this career. <laughs> that we I, think, I don't think I would have been able to continue as a musician if I hadn't, you know, mm-hmm. in hindsight, mm-hmm. I think that, um, getting into it both gave me tools to deal with the, insecurities of the mind but also the um the confidence to keep trying Mm. to just keep trying to deal with them Mm -hmm. so like i have um i've always had like you know a a really bad uh like choke in the clutch kind of thing going on over the years Mm -hmm. you know and i had some very like terrible moments you know that were just tough to remember you know being on stage and just completely folding Mm -hmm. and it's falling apart Mm -hmm. and um you know like some of those things might be career enders for people was it because of nerves or because yeah yeah, okay yeah you know and so uh, you know i remember one instance where we used to have 50 ways to leave your lover in the set and i'd be subbing for markov on a gig and you know like i will have played that groove like a hundred million times at home and then just the you know nerves and i just couldn't like could not string it together mm-hmm. on a gig mm-hmm. and it would be really you know and those things were uh just terribly humiliating mm-hmm. you know and this is not that long ago you know i think i had a couple of instances of folding on that maybe six years ago seven years ago mm. like on stage yeah and it uh you know uh i i looking back at what I do and like how I manage that sort of thing. Now 
uh, even, you know, and in soloing, honestly, like being able to like string a solo together, keep my head together. You know, it's like when you're playing in a combo and everybody's kind of comping, you know, it's, it's easy to come up with ideas and just play off of each other. And, you know, it seems like I never run out of shit to think of, you know, to, to get in there. But then it's like, boom, uh, you know, and then it's, there's a kind of like this issue of, I don't think that what I have to say is valid. Right. Why would anybody listen to what I have to, I kind of pull out some licks or whatever, you know, like, and really what is it that I want to say? Yeah. Like I really don't have a voice. Yeah, man. You oh, know, and God. Soloing, it, it, soloing is such a bitch. And I, it, you know, I get, I get pissed that all the other instruments get to solo with like three dudes playing behind them. And then when it comes time for the drum solo, everybody is like, you got it. You got to go. You know, do something cool. Because they can't tolerate a drum solo. Right. We're going to go have a beer. Right. See in 10. But just the fact that you're all alone. <laughs> yes. You know, you have no support. You're just soloing without a net. You've been the net for these assholes all night. Right. And now, you know, and it's all up to you. And, I mean, don't get me wrong. A, a well-executed drum solo is just one of the coolest things ever. But... You know, I think it's I, harder. It's definitely harder. And as as a player or as a listener, I prefer drum solos that have some kind of accompaniment mm-hmm. in the band. Um, but um, you know, going back to kind of like the, the the internal dialogue during during your solo, like I've I've wrestled with like that wasn't choppy enough. That wasn't hip enough. Still not choppy enough. Are you going to vary it up? Or are you just going to do it? Like there's mm-hmm. this constant like sabotaging dialogue going on. And meanwhile, that, like that's all diverting Ram from actually executing. Right. Things, you know? And it's like, yeah. And I would have problems where it was like, uh, that part of my brain would just completely derail everything, yep. you know, just freeze up. Mm-hmm. And so it's definitely helped with that. Like, I don't think I would have had any way to approach that issue at all mm-hmm. without yoga and meditation, mm-hmm. you know, and at least gives you a chance to like get a breath in between you and the panic right? <laughs> you know, and, and do that sort of thing. But really find out. It's like, okay, you know, if all I feel like saying here is like pocket, then, then I'm okay with that. I'm going to say some pocket, right? you know, and it's changed, definitely changed the way where it's like, I don't like freeze up and clam everything every time I take a solo now, mm-hmm. you know, and I know that, uh, I think a lot of it is like I want to play like anybody but me mm-hmm. when I'm in those solo situations. Yeah. And I don't have a sense because I don't really know what me is right. you know, when I play that stuff. Right. And I mean, especially doing all the all the, the cover gigs and tribute gigs that, that most of us do now and that you especially do, you're spending, you know, 95 percent of your life copping other guys it's, it's very close to 100 <laughs> you know, percent it's like literally right and, and i've always been that way i think you know i just kind of ended up doing cover music as a li- you know as a living i probably started really making a living at it in 2000 mm-hmm. and i just never really got a, a big foothold in the original music world mm-hmm. and i think it's just because of the i mean the practicalities of it you know you can make a living playing cover music yeah and i always have yeah yeah um and yeah, it's you can make a living doing original music, but man, it takes time and legwork mm-hmm. to to build that out and to really make it a dependable thing. Whereas, like you said earlier, you know, putting together a cover band or a tribute show is just laughably easy in a lot of ways. But yeah, I mean, getting people to getting people to buy into like a night of hall notes, right? Is pretty easy, right? You know, so and I think for me though. And within that, now it's like trying to uh, really establish a reputation. So, like, when you come see a show that I've produced, 
you're going to see the best show that that is out there. Mm-hmm. You know, you're going to see a, like. You know, your people come to our Steely Dan show, and and they're like, you guys sound way more like the record than the actual Steely Dan. Mm. You know, and like, don't want to compare myself to Donald Fagan and those guys at all, right. because like, if I wrote those songs and been playing them for thirty or forty years, yeah. of course I would be changing stuff up. You know, but what does the fan want to hear? Right, they want to hear the rec- the version off Katie Lied, mm-hmm. and so that is going to be the best the best chance you're going to have is to see a tribute do it. Yeah, so you know, like nobody cares about. You know, like the cool shit that you figured out that you could play over Asia. Right. You know, like they really, they were like, man, I've never seen anybody do a Steve Gadd solo. Let me, I'd love to watch that. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. And so, and it's like the, the, in all the different instruments, it's like, you know, they want to see that Larry Carlton solo and Kid Charlemagne, mm-hmm. you know? And when somebody nails it, they go completely bonkers. Yep. Even though they know it's not Larry Carlton. Mm-hmm. They love it because they're like, that solo was hard and you nailed it. Yep. You know? Yeah. So every once in a while you can find there's a player that's so singular that it just really doesn't matter what they do. Like we use two guitar players on the Steely show. And one of the guys we've been using a lot in the last year or two is a guy named Jimmy Galloway. And it does not matter what that guy plays. Like he is a barn burner. Like he's a thoroughbred. You just, and really like directing him is not a good idea from the point of like, you're not going to like, you're not going to get anything better than what he's going to come up with. Mm -hmm. So like first time we did Asia and rehearsal with him, you know, like he didn't play any of the Danny Diaz solos. He just like improvised over those changes. And it was so badass that the whole band just stopped, (laughs) you know? And so last gig that we did with him at Bankman's, we did a recent one and every time he was playing the solos, like the place would come unglued. Right. And I was going to say, like, if you're, if, if you're not going to play what's on the record, then you better play something just as compelling, if not more. Yeah. Because the crowd will respond to, uh, you know, the, the transcribed solo because they know it and it's awesome. And they're like, holy shit, he did it. But they'll, they'll also respond to something original, something improvised, if it has just as much juice mm-hmm. as, as the original. Man, you don't get that all the time. Yeah. I can't say enough good things about Jimmy as a guitar player. He is just a straight beast. Yeah. Absolutely. love talking about bass players on the on, on the podcast here oh, okay and you've done a bunch of shows and had a great partnership it seems with uh with kari simmons oh yeah um so talk about him a little bit and, and playing with him oh my god so great you know like kari i, I like to it, it's not really a joke i tell everybody that i introduce him to that he is the nicest guy in the music industry I, he's I, just such a sweetheart you're right and i met him like he was taking my class my yoga class really and he comes to kashi all the time and uh you know, he and I just hit it off and uh, we start talking about doing stuff together. And so, like, I've only started, like, working with Kari professionally in the last year or two. And it's been really wonderful. That's interesting because, like, I moved here two years ago and, like, most of the th- stuff I've seen you do has been with Kari. But I didn't, I, I thought that went back a ways. That, so, but that's relatively new. Yeah, it's relatively new. So, mm-hmm. like, I'm probably the bass player I've played with the most, um, besides my brother, is Tom Young. Mm-hmm. And he's, he's a beast. Mm-hmm. He's unbelievable. Just a really deep musician. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but like, Kari, God, like, his sound and just his whole vibe on the stage, you know, um, he's got that thing that I really love where, um, and I think Greg, my brother, also has that where they have, a really um, like powerful, like consistent sound, mm-hmm. like a cat that's like um, 
that was very strong hands, uh, very strong hands, but like <laughs> they kind of turn up kind of loud and play light. So they're, and they're, they're giving each note its full value. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a lot of consistency and tone, like great hands, great tone, you know, and it's like you, you know, you, when you get that bass player and you feel that kind of like heavy, like bass coating right. on that side of the stage, right. you know, and it just kind of like, <laughs> it fills out that whole part of the sound. Uh -huh. And it's just like, I mean, you almost, it does, it kind of plays itself. Yeah. And Kari's like that. He's just like so amazing, super pro. Mm -hmm. Can't say enough good things about that guy. Yeah. And the, the other thing about him that, that I love and that my wife loves, and I, I think a reason why he's so well loved as a performer is just how much fun he has mm -hmm. and just the joy that he exudes while playing. Um, and it's, it's cool to see you play together because, you know, a, a lot of times you're singing and you're, you know, you're focused a lot of the time. You're kind of inward. And, and so that's compelling in that kind of leave on way. And then Kari is, is kind of the opposite. Like he's, he's going outward. He's mm -hmm. like smiling at everybody on stage and like, you know, vibing on the crowd and, and, and uh, vibing like his aura is just, like, yeah. you know, and the, I think that that's a huge piece of his appeal is just like, man, you know, he just like lifts everybody up. Yep. You know, so much. And his time feel uh, took me a second to get used to it. And it's really wonderful. You know, kind of like the... Um, because, you know, I hear a lot of Bernard Edwards. You know, I hear a lot of... Um, in, in his playing, a lot of... Uh, oh, there's one player. I don't want to think about it for a second. It's going to come into my head. But, like, um, the way that those, you know, that those records would come and... Uh, it's, it's really a Bernard thing. Like, and the, it's like, he's a little on top of the beat, uh -huh. but it doesn't feel like he's on top of the beat. Right. You know, there's like, it there's kind of like a, little a bit. shelf at the top of each note where, you know, as he's kind of like, you know, like he's there with you when you're putting it in the middle of the beat, uh -huh. but also like the note starts a little early too. Right. You know, he's got this really kind of, Jedi thing with mm -hmm. his time playing that's just fantastic. And so like if you you try to play to him, it's gonna whack your mind out. But like if you have a strong and certain like your your sense of time is nice and strong and then you guys kind of meet in the middle, mm -hmm. it feels amazing. Yeah. You know? Yeah. He's got this this forward momentum about his his feel. It's like it's not on top of the beat, it's not it's not pushing, it's just moving. Mm -hmm. It's like this constant kind of um you know, uh, I, I, like you, I'm not sure exactly how to describe it, but like there are some play bass players like like Kevin Scott, yeah. like every one of his notes is just rooted like right in the middle. ten feet below the earth and yep. just like bang. Um, but but Kari is like that. It's that solid without being that heavy. Mm -hmm. You know, I think it, and like so the difference there is like uh, Kevin has done a lot of time playing jazz mm -hmm. where you know in many instances they the bass player is much more the timekeeper right you know than the drummer mm -hmm. and uh where Kari's played in a lot of like r&b and pop combos even though he can play jazz you know so like he is much more uh working with the alchemy of the difference in the fields between mm -hmm. the drummer and the bass player yeah oh, i'm trying to think he it, it's uh there was this one thing I was just like, oh, he really reminds me of Daryl Jones, hmm. uh, who is a Miles bass player for, you know, like around the Mandala 
uh-huh. that sort of thing. But like I first became aware of uh, Daryl when he was playing with Sting mm-hmm. in like the Dream of the Blue Turtles era, mm-hmm. and like he's got that. You know, like the body language is very similar, and the the sound and the approach is really similar. Yeah, you know, it's like it just feels so like every time I play with Kari, I'm like thinking Omar. Uh huh. And I'm just like, let's make it feel like Omar, and that's gonna work. Right. Yeah. God, he's 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 great. I haven't gotten to play with him yet, and, and every time we see each other, we're both like, someday, man, it's gonna happen. We're <laughs> make it happen. You know? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. He's worth chasing. Definitely, for sure. Cool, man. Well, thanks so much for talking. Thank you for having me, man. It's been an honor, and I really appreciate it. Wasn't that cool? Like I said, this is part one of Ganesh, and part two will be coming at you in two weeks. We got done with this conversation, and I realized there was just so much of his story we didn't get to, plus I I really dug talking and hanging with him, so I asked him to come back and get to the stuff we missed, including growing up in New Orleans, studying with Joe Porcaro and Ralph Humphrey in L.A., the physical aspects of his yoga practice, and working for Drumhead Magazine. So all that coming up in part two. Ganesh also gave us a great installment of our Desert Island Record Picks bonus content. You can access that and the rest of our bonus content by donating any amount to our Patreon page. Once again, that's patreon.com slash working drummer. Thanks as always to Mike Jackson for his technical assistance and big thanks to him this week in particular for helping me handle a curveball that my aging MacBook Air decided to throw at me. Cheers, Mike. Come on back next week for Matt Krause's interview. Thanks for listening. Be well. Be well.